Hey, good morning. How's everybody? Good. Good to see you. My name is Zach Lee, one of the pastors here. Super excited to be with you this morning. If you've got a Bible, we're going to be in Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 12. Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 12. While you're turning there, let me open us with a word of prayer, uh, and then we will begin. Almighty God, I thank you that you are great and that you are high and that you are lifted up. I thank you for your Trinitarian nature that you don't need us for anything. You've always had love within the members of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit for all eternity. And I just ask right now that you would send the Spirit and He would move in our hearts as we read the Scriptures. Uh, I pray that you would help me in this text, which is kind of a, a weird text, just talking about sin and transgression and what's going on between Adam and Moses. It seems a, a bit obscure, so I just pray for grace. We thank you. We love you. We pray all of it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I want to tell you, when we were uh, kids for Halloween, we would actually go out and we would do trick-or-treating, okay? Now, if you're uncomfortable with that, that's okay. My mom was uncomfortable with that, and so she said, you guys can go do trick-or-treating, but you can't dress up as anything scary. In fact, you have to dress up as something religious. And so I have two younger brothers and a little sister, so one year for Halloween, she made us be the three wise men, and my little sister was the star. And so the little star would go to the door, and we, as the three wise men, would follow the star to the door, Okay. Now, you might think that that's adorable. That made me want to become an atheist, okay? I, I hated that. I did not like that idea. I did not think that was fun. And the Bible never says there were three wise men, by the way. But anyway, so we would do that, and you would go, and you would get this huge bag of candy, but you couldn't eat it right away, right? You had to go home, and you had to give it to your parents. At least I had to give it to my parents, and they had to check the candy to make sure that there wasn't poison or razor blades or something crazy in it, okay? Now, I think that that's just a ploy for them to get to eat candy, because they'd be like, this one's got a little opening. And I'm like, you would die if there's poison in it. But, that, but anyway, that's what they do. They, you check your candy. Now, if you are of a previous generation, you might have not done that, though. Before the 1970s, people would pass out cupcakes. They would pass out muffins. They'd pass out banana bread. They'd pass out candy. And you would just eat that candy as you were walking down the street. What happened in the 1970s that changed trick-or-treating forever? What ruined it for everyone? We're now we're afraid if there's a little hole, you know, in the package that somebody's taken a syringe and has injected that Snickers bar or whatever it might be. Well, there was a guy in the 1970s, and his name is Ronald Clark O'Brien. You ever heard that name? Ronald Clark O'Brien, and he was a killer. He's nicknamed the Candyman, okay? By the way, it is weird that for some reason in American history, a lot of killers have three names, right? So if you think of John Wayne Gacy, and a lot of times they have three first names. Lee Harvey Oswald, right? James Earl Ray. So you need to be careful with people with three first names, like, I don't know, Robert Jeffrey Ashley, something like that. <laughs> or, or Zachary Tyler Lee. Okay, so be careful. Watch your back. For whatever reason, they always seem to have three names. So this guy's name is Ronald Clark O'Brien, and he is the one that ruined Halloween for everybody. What he did is he took pixie sticks, and he put cyanide in them, and he stapled the top of them. So it's very obvious, at least, but he stapled the top of them and gave them out to kids. Uh, he eventually was caught, executed in Texas. Don't feel bad for him. He killed his 8-year-old son with cyanide so that he could collect a $40,000 insurance check. Okay? But this is the guy that ruined it for everybody else. There haven't been a whole lot of other cases of that, by the way. There haven't been. Every now and again, it'll pop up each year, but most of the candy you get is totally fine. But one guy has ruined it for all. One guy has made it where every time you go out and get candy, now it's suspicious. This text this morning is going to say something very, very similar about Adam. One guy who's going to ruin it for everybody, and now that there's a suspicion around mankind, there's now a, a sinfulness and a corruption and a brokenness and a guilt that we inherit because one guy messed it up, okay? So that's what this text is going to do. Zach, why are you talking about Halloween and serial killers at church to make that point? Verse 12, 
Let's walk through this line by line, phrase by phrase. First of all, Paul says, therefore. Typically, when Paul says, therefore, he goes on to give a reason for something. This, therefore, is more going to set apart what he's about to talk about. He's about to talk about, for the rest of chapter 5, the difference of being in Christ versus being in Adam. That we're born in Adam and therefore receive his condemnation, but we are born again into Christ. So Paul's therefore here functions a little bit differently than it typically does because he's really setting up really the grounds for what he's already talked about. He's already talked about how we're justified by faith. How did that happen? Because we're united to Christ. That's what he means by therefore. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Let's take that part by part. First of all, he says just as. Typically, when you say just as, you make a comparison, right? Just as a cat is a pet, a dog is a pet, something like that. The Apostle Paul, though, will say just as, and he's not going to come back to give the so then, okay? That's what the Apostle Paul does. He won't actually come back to the so then. He won't really complete his thought until verse 18. So it's like he's saying, on the one hand, and then he just never goes back for the other hand, okay? Now, the Apostle Paul, though, as he rabbit trails here, is not mindlessly rabbit trailing, okay? He has a point. He's trying to say, just as Adam sinned, and we are condemned, so Christ was righteous, and those in Christ are seen as righteous. That's his point. But he gives this long kind of rabbit trail in his thinking, not because Paul is distracted, this is inspired by the Holy Spirit, but because the Apostle Paul, when he talks about Adam, realizes he needs to clarify. He needs to say something more here. I'll give you an example. Have you ever been talking to somebody and they rabbit trail with details that are irrelevant to the story? That happens all the time. I'll go up to someone and I'll say, hey, where are you from? And they'll do something like this. Well, I'm originally from Florida, but, you know, it was about 17 years ago. Honey, was it 17 or 18 years ago? Well, I think it was 18 years ago. No, because John was born, you know, 17, and I'm just sitting there like, is this relevant to the story at all? The question was not should you debate with your spouse in front of me about how many years you lived in Florida. That wasn't my question. My question was, where are you from, right? That's not what the Apostle Paul's doing here. He's not just going off on a tangent. He is, as he rabbit trails, trying to fill in the story so we understand what's going on with Adam, we understand what's going on with Moses. That way, when he makes his point about Christ, it's all the more powerful. So you get the just as here in verse 12. You don't get the so also until uh, verse 18. He says, therefore, just as, look at this next phrase, sin came into the world. Notice that God did not create the world broken and sinful. That's very important that you understand that. The reason the world is broken, the reason there is evil in the world is not because God created evil. If God creates evil, yes, he ordains it, yes, he's sovereign over it, but if he creates evil, he's not a good creator. In Genesis, he looks across everything he's made, and multiple times he says it is good, and he says it's very good, okay? So evil is not a stuff that God created. It's not like there's a mountain and a tree and Adam and then a clump of stuff called evil, that as Adam's gardening, he trips over evil, and he's like, what is that? Well, there's that dark mist over the ground. It's not a, it's not a substance. In the same way that darkness is the absence of light, in the same way that uh, coldness is the absence of heat, evil is what happens when we reject God. It's not a substance that God makes. It's the rejection and the turning away of, from God. It's like a hole in a shirt where shirts should be. A hole is not a thing. It's absence of shirt. So God creates the world perfect. He creates it good. Evil comes into the world and corrupts the world as mankind rejects God and walks away from God. When you walk away from the source of all good and all joy and all life, you get the opposite of those things. You get the fall and you get sin and you get death and you get brokenness, okay? So sin comes into the world. God doesn't create the world bad. He creates the world very good. Sin comes into the world through the sin of Adam, okay? 
Also, death is going to come through sin. This is important to mention. Death is not, quote-unquote, natural. Death is not part of life. There's a tendency sometimes if you go to a funeral, someone will say, this is such a beautiful death, or death is just part of life, or whatever. No, no that's not a Christian thinking. Death is our enemy. We hate death. It is not natural. Mankind was not supposed to die. We die because of sin. It is evil. It is bad. It should hurt. It should be weird. If you've ever been with someone in their last moments, as I have, it hurts. It's strange. Their body's here, but they're not here. It's just, it's a weird deal. It's supposed to be because death comes through sin as well, okay? Let's keep looking again in verse 12. Therefore, just as we said that, just as sin came into the world, we said that. Now, let's look at this next part. Just as sin came into the world through one man. Let me ask you this question. Does the Apostle Paul here see Adam as a real historical figure? He does, okay? You might not know this, but there are whole streams of theology out there that will say the story in Genesis of Adam and Eve is just a metaphor. It's fictional, okay? That Adam and Eve aren't real people. This is just generically talking about the fall of mankind. That's not how the New Testament would interpret that, okay? Now, let me be clear. There are poetic elements in there. There are even elements in there that are similar to other creation stories in the ancient Near East, but the Apostle Paul sees Adam as a real person, as real as Christ. He's going to compare the one man Adam and the one man Christ. Okay? So again, we want our thinking always to be biblical. The Bible sees Adam as a real historical person, and it says this, just as sin came in the world through one man. Okay? Let me ask you this question. What was Adam's sin? What was the sin that came into the world and ruined it for everybody? What was Adam's version of stapling pixie sticks with cyanide? What was it? Okay? I've heard people say it's all kinds of stuff. I've heard pastors get up and say this, that the first sin mankind committed was that Adam wasn't a good leader. He didn't lead his family. And I'm like, uh, 1 Timothy 2.14 says Eve committed the first sin. So I don't think that Adam uh, not leading his family can be the first sin. Okay? Other people have said the first sin of Adam is that he ate fruit as if God just like hates fruit, right? God's like, oranges are disgusting. Everything else is delicious, but oranges, stay away from oranges. That's not the point, Okay? And as an aside, we don't know what the fruit was. A lot of people think it's an apple, despite the fact that apples, the Bible doesn't say that, and apples have a tendency to grow in colder climates, right? Think like Washington State. So I'm no biologist, I'm no Scientologist, but I'm saying I don't think it's an apple. I don't know what it is. But it's not just that he eats fruit. Here's the sin that breaks the world. You ready? It's that Adam and Eve want to be like God. They want to determine right and wrong, okay? That's it. The serpent, when he tempts Eve, says, when you eat of this, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The problem there is not that they know good and evil. God tells them good and evil. That's where we go to the Bible. We go to God's word to know good and evil. The problem and what Adam and Eve want to do is they want to play God. They want to determine what's good and evil. They want to reject God's morality and substitute it for their own. And by the way, every sin we commit since Adam does the same thing. Every time we sin, we are saying, I would make a better God than God. There is an infinite gap between you and God. You're a creature. You're made of the dirt. You're not God. You'll never be God. We are to obey God because we are creatures. And so the the first sin of mankind is to say, I'll be like God. I'll decide what to do, and I don't need him, okay? And I don't need him. And though Eve sinned first, just to be fair here to the ladies, the Bible will always put the blame on this to Adam. It is through Adam that mankind is condemned, okay? Not through Eve. Next, I want you to see this idea in the text that we are all held accountable through the one man. This is called federalism, if you want to use this term, okay? We as Americans are very individualistic. We have our individual cars, we have our individual houses, our individual Facebook accounts, our individual bank account. We're very individualistic. That's more American thinking than it is biblical thinking. 
in the Bible, things are done in community, right? So you have the nation of Israel, or you belong to the church. Things are done in community. And so we are seen as being guilty because of the one man, Adam. We are seen as guilty because of his sin. If you think that's unfair, I want to mention a few things to you. First of all, Adam is like the ambassador of humanity, okay? What is an ambassador? An ambassador goes to another country to represent not just himself, but to represent his country. He represents a people group. Does that make sense? So if I'm an ambassador for the U.S. and I go to, I don't know, Zimbabwe, and I go up to the president of Zimbabwe and I slap him in the face, is he merely going to dislike me? He's going to dislike Americans. He's going to say, why is this the guy you sent here? Okay? Because an ambassador represents a bigger people group than himself. Okay? That's why it's important that you have a good ambassador. A good ambassador makes your nation look good. A bad ambassador makes your nation look awful. So what happens when Adam, the ambassador for humanity, metaphorically slaps God in the face? It affects everybody else. It affects everybody else. Okay? The second thing I want to say about this and sin entering in the world through Adam is you need to realize all humanity in Genesis rebels against God. How many people are there in the garden? How many? Two. How many people sin? Two. 100% of humans. Every human that exists rebels against God, okay? So it's not just Adam. It's all humanity, at least all the humanity that exists has rebelled against God, okay? Number three, we're seen as linked to Adam because we're humans. The Bible will use the phrase in someone's loins. That doesn't mean we already exist or anything like that. The point is, is that genetically we're all linked to Adam. There are certain diseases where if your parent has the disease, your child will have the disease as well. Sin is like that. Because we all stem from Adam and Eve and because they're corrupted with sin, we are born not only corrupted, but seen as guilty because of that sin. And then lastly, if you think, Zach, that seems unfair. Why is it that I'm guilty because of Adam? If you think it's unfair to be counted guilty because of Adam, you also have to think it's unfair to be counted righteous in Christ. That razor cuts both ways. God is not about fair. If God does fair, everyone gets condemnation. God is about grace. He's about grace. But this text is going to say that we fell through the one man. Now look at the next line here, the next little phrase. And death through sin. Okay? Let me say a few things about this. First of all, when the Bible talks about death, it means both spiritual death and physical death. Adam is told that on the day he eats of the fruit, he'll die, yet the day he eats of the fruit, he doesn't die. But what does happen on that day? He's kicked out of the garden. Him and God's relationship is separated. Okay? So the Bible will combine the idea of death with also spiritual death. Paul will talk about hell being eternal death. Uh, death is mixed with condemnation, etc. So this idea goes together. Additionally, sin and death are linked in the Bible. Okay? When there is sin, there is death. They go together. Why is it important that we believe in Jesus' resurrection? Because a dead Messiah gets you nothing. A dead Messiah gets you nothing. Jesus defeats sin on the cross, and he defeats death at the resurrection. That's why you need both of them. When you deal with sin, you deal with sin's ugly twin sister, death. That's why you have the cross, which covers sin, and you have resurrection. They're both being dealt with, okay? They're both being dealt with, but the Bible will constantly link those, and they're linked here in verse 12. Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. That's what sin earns. That's the paycheck for sin. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Notice the difference there. You earn sin, the other is a gift of salvation. James 1, 14 through 15. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Okay? That's what this text is saying. Through the sin of the one man, Adam, death now spreads. They go together. 
Mankind's biggest enemies are sin, death, and the devil. And we see two of those three here. The third one's implied because that's the one that tricked humanity. Let me show you a quote. This comes from a New Testament scholar I really like, a guy named Douglas Moo. He teaches at Wheaton. He has uh, devoted his entire life to uh, studying Romans. And he says this here about sin, which I think is helpful. Paul attributes to sin a very active role. It reigns, can be obeyed, pays wages, seizes opportunity, deceives, and kills. In a word, he personifies sin, picturing it as a power that holds sway in the world outside Christ, bringing disaster and death on all humanity. All right? Let's go back to verse 12. We're almost done with verse 12. We're just trying to get all the meat off the bone here. I'm a wings guy, so that works for me. I'm a big buffalo wings guy, so that analogy just really rings true to me. Therefore, just as sin came into the world... through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. Pay attention to that last phrase, because this passage has been debated for 1,600 years on what this means. So here's my question for you, church. You ready? When it says that death spread to all men because all sinned, does that mean that all sinned in Adam, or that all committed individual sins? Which one does it mean? Think about it for a second. It's kind of tricky, you might assume that you know what it means because your, your ESV translators have used the word because here, but the Greek phrase that's translated because is the Greek phrase ephha. It means all kinds of stuff. Sometimes it means because, other times it means for, other times it means that, other times it means who, which. It can mean all kinds of things. It's a very generic phrase. So what does it mean here when it says death spread to all men because all sin? Because all sinned in Adam, question mark, or because all committed individual sins, question mark. Do you see how it's difficult? If you're lost with the linguistics, let me give you an example. There are certain sentences that are kind of obscure, and it's hard to tell what they're talking about. Let me give you a great one. The girl smelled the flower with her nose before she picked it. In that sentence, did the girl pick the flower or the nose? Think about it. The girl smelled the flower with her nose before she picked it. Which one? You can't tell. It's obscure, okay? My favorite one is this. What do you call a lady that works at a post office? I don't know. It's difficult, right? Do you call her a female man? That doesn't sound right. I don't think you call her a female man. Do you call her a male woman? That sounds like M-A-L-E, like a male woman, right? Zach, you call her a male carrier. That makes her sound like she carries boys around, right? What do you call her? It's difficult. Why? Because male can be spelled M-A-L-E, meaning man, or it can be M-A-I-L, which is, you know, postage stuff that you send around. It's obscure. It's difficult. This text is very difficult because it just says, all men sinned, and the question is, wait, in Adam or in ourselves? What is this text talking about? Here's my answer. So the best of my research, the best that I can do, here's my answer. I think that this individual text is saying that, I think because is the right translation, I think this individual text is saying death spreads to mankind because we commit individual sins. I think that's what exegetically this line means, but hear me, theologically, And in the larger context here, I think it's saying that we sinned in Adam, okay? So I think both are true. I think this text is saying death spread to all people because we committed sins like Adam. I think that's what this line is saying. But theologically, all that does is push the question back. Why are we born where we sin? Why are we born to where we commit these sins? And the reason is, is because we are dead in Adam. We are guilty because of Adam. So exegetically, we sin in this text. Theologically, we do that because we fell in Adam. What, what Paul is doing here is he's implying something. In logic, this is called an enthymeme, when you have an implied premise. I'll give you an example. Uh, I had uh, a lot of girls dump me before I met Katie. That was just a confession. I had a lot of girls dump me before I met Katie. 
So if I'm sitting down with a girl and she says, this isn't working out, you're not really my type, and I say, what's your type? And she says, handsome. She hasn't directly called me ugly. She's used an infamy. She has implied that I'm ugly, though she didn't say it directly. And if I had a nickel for every time that happened, I would have three nickels, okay? That's what the Apostle Paul is doing. He's saying death spreads to all people because we all individually sin, but why do we all individually sin? Because we've already sinned in Adam. You're not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you are by nature a sinner. Let me show you the context here. Let's look at the next verses here. This is going to be verses 15, 16, 17, 18, and 19. We're just going to throw them all on the screen as one big slide. Look at this. See if this is that we just sinned on our own or if we sinned in Adam. For if many died through one man's trespass, that's Adam. Verse 16. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. Verse 17. Because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men. Verse 19, for as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So what Paul is saying is, yes, we do individually sin, but the reason we do so is because we are born spiritually dead because we're linked to Adam, and he sinned against God, not just accidentally, but willingly, but willingly. Here's the logic of what I'm saying if you're confused. I've got another slide that just walks through the logic of it. Four steps here. Step one, Adam is our representative sin. Step two, death came into the world. Step three, we are counted as sinful in Adam and are born dead spiritually. And then step four, because we are born spiritually dead and totally depraved, we commit our own individual sin and are condemned to death. Do you see that? Do you see how it's both? What Paul is saying is death spread to all men because all people sin, but the reason all people sinned is because we were already separated from God anyway. That's the point, okay? That's that difficult verse 12. That's how I think that it should best be interpreted. Let's look at verse 13. There's another tricky thing coming up. Verse 13 says this. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. Now look at this next phrase, which is weird. But sin is not counted where there is no law. What does that mean? You ever heard a Christian say all sins are equal? I've heard Christians say that. I've heard Bible study leaders say that. I've heard pastors say that. But a lot of times when people use that phrase, they don't stop and clarify what they mean, and the waters get a little bit muddy. I'll give you an example. My son Judah is two, and he's adorable. And sometimes, as a nickname, I call him Toots, T-O-O-T-S, okay? So I'll say, good morning, Toots, just as a little nice thing. He, to be fair, he's a somewhat gassy kid, so it works. <laughs> but I'll say, good morning, Toots, good to see you. Sometimes I'll do that. Sometimes if I'm walking by him, I'll say, excuse me, Toots, and I'll walk around like that. Now, we're teaching him that when he needs to interrupt, he needs to say, excuse me, okay? So Katie and I will be talking, and he'll come up, and he'll interrupt, and we say, hey, baby, don't interrupt when uh, mommy and daddy are talking. So he'll come up, and he'll pat your leg and say, excuse me, Toots, like that. And it's adorable, all right? We don't correct it. We're just like, we're going to let that go till he's 30. He's going to do that in a business meeting, and just he'll never know, right? He's using the phrase, excuse me, Toots. He's using the phrase, excuse me, but he doesn't fully grasp what it means. It's kind of obscure. He's going through the motions, but he hasn't really thought through it yet because he's little. A lot of times when we say all sins are equal, we don't stop and actually pause and figure out what, what do we mean by that. Yes, there is a sense in which all sins are equal because God hates sin. To steal a cookie merits damnation because you've offended an infinite being. To murder somebody merits damnation because you've offended an infinite being. So there is a sense in which sins are all equal because God hates sin and one sin makes you a sinner, okay? But here's how some people use it. Some people say when they say all, all sins are equal, they act as though everything is equally bad, equally grievous, and that's not the case. Biblically, some things are worse than others. Jesus says to Pilate, he who handed me over to you is worthy of a greater sin. Jesus talks about weightier and lighter matters of the law. 
In Ezekiel, he's told he will see greater abominations, greater blasphemies than what he's seen, okay? So, so there is this idea that some sins are actually worse than others, okay? Let me give you a text here from Numbers 15, 27 through 31. If one person sins unintentionally, he shall offer a female goat a year old for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement before the Lord for the person who makes a mistake when he sins unintentionally to make atonement for him, and he shall be forgiven. You shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally, for him who is native among the people of Israel, and for the stranger who sojourns among you. Now look at this next part. But the person who does anything with a high hand, whether he is native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from among his people. Because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandments, that person shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity shall be on him. Okay? So not only is it the case that some sins show a darker heart, that some sins are actually more grievous, but it's also the case that the Bible separates out sins from trespasses. Look at verses 13, verse 13 again. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. In the Bible, sins are different than trespasses. All trespasses are sins, but not all sins are trespasses. What is the difference? A sin is where you do something you shouldn't do against God, okay? A trespass, though, is where you violate a known command. You violate a written command. You violate something you should know. I'll give you two examples from my childhood. There was a time when I was a little kid, and my mom was in the other room, and she said, Zach, what are you doing? And I said, I'm coloring. I'm drawing. She said, what are you drawing with? And I said, a pencil. She said, what are you drawing on? And I said, the couch. And she said, why don't you bring the pencil to mommy? Okay? Now, she had never told me not to color on the couch. We just colored, and then she left, so I colored on the couch. It was wrong. My mom didn't like it, but she had never given me the command, thou shalt not draw on the couch. Okay? Now, contrast that another time. I was in my dad's office. My dad is a banker, and I was a little kid, and I was eating these crackers. They were these orange crackers with a little peanut butter in the middle. And uh, I came into the, the, his office eating those crackers, and he says, son, try not to spill those crackers in my office. And I said, okay. And I instantly wanted to spill the crackers. Sorry, my dad's here today. This is confession. I was little. Uh, I wanted to spill the crackers. So when he wasn't looking, I'd be like, and just like let them fall to the ground. I even remember taking a bite and tapping it like a cigarette, like making the little pieces fall off right here, okay? That's transgression. He said, don't do this. And I thought, I got to do it because I was told not to, Okay. So Paul here is separating the difference between a sin and a transgression. They're both worthy of death. They're both worthy of condemnation. There is a sense, though, in which a known rebelling, a shaking your fist at the sky, like we saw in Numbers 15, though, is worse, okay? It is worse. Verse 13, I want you to see this one more time. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Here's what he's saying. Before the Mosaic law is given, and God is giving us his scriptures, there is still sin. There is still rebellion against God. But what happens is sin moves from being like a power to being a record of wrongs. It moves from being this thing that owns humanity to this thing that owns humanity, and we have a record of wrongs against us. I'll give you one more example. Imagine somebody who's addicted to drugs, somebody who, let's say, is addicted to meth. There is a sense in which that meth owns them. They are a slave to that meth. They're a slave to the drugs. The drugs are their master, and it rules over them. Now take a guy who's addicted to drugs, addicted to meth, who also is on probation and has a criminal record. Meth and drugs still run that guy's life. Those drugs still stand over him as a power, but now every time he fails a drug test, every time he fails a polygraph test, the prison sentences get worse, the fines get worse, because when he now sins, there is this record of wrongs that's kept against him. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying that the Mosaic Law does. The Mosaic Law, and we've said this a bunch, was never intended to save you. You should not be looking through the Bible for this list of rules you can keep to be saved. That list of rules only condemns you and shows you you need Christ, and that's the only way you can be saved, okay? 
But that's what the Apostle Paul is saying here. Verse 14. Yet death reigned. Let me pause there real quick. Notice the kingdom language here. The gospel is that God is king, the Trinitarian God of the universe. We've rebelled against him, so he sent his infinite son, Christ, to redeem us so that we might have new life, and he has reestablished his kingdom. But here in this text, it's going to say, because of sin, death reigns. When mankind tries to push God off the throne, mankind doesn't take its place. Death does, okay? Death is our enemy that we cannot defeat. Listen, let me just say something really blunt and true to you. You ready? You are going to die. It's not an if it's a win. Welcome to Parkway, where we quote, just say it, okay? You are going to die. But Zach, I'm doing this new fad, this new uh, diet that no one's ever done before in world history. Maybe that's what'll solve it. You're going to die. Do the fad diet or don't. I had a lady try to get me on a diet one time where uh, I was like, okay, so could I take bread and wine with communion? She's like, no. Could I enter a land flowing with milk and honey? She's like, no. I'm like, that's an unbiblical diet then. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> diet or don't, you're going to die, Okay. Work out or don't, you're going to die. Save your money or don't, you're going to die. That's going to happen. Death is an equalizer or someone with three first names will kill you, okay? But it's going to happen. Death reigns over mankind and we cannot defeat it on our own. We can prolong human life through technology and science, but we cannot eliminate death. Oh yeah, Zach, well I'm gonna be cryogenically frozen. Okay, and then when they unfreeze you, guess what, after a few years, you die, okay? Mankind cannot conquer this. This is an enemy that no matter how hard we try, no matter how smart we are, we have to be delivered from it. We need a rescuer. We can't solve death on our own. And this text is saying, when mankind sinned, death set up its throne and rules over mankind until Jesus knocks death off the throne at the resurrection. Okay. 14, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. Notice, Adam didn't merely sin, he transgressed. Do not eat of the tree. He knew that, and he did it anyway, okay? Who was a type of the one who was to come. Now, let me tell you why these verses are tricky. Let's re read 13 and 14 again. There's another problem with this text. It's a very difficult text. There's verses 13 and 14. It sounds contradictory. Let's look at 13 and 14 again. For sin indeed was in the law before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law, okay? So it's saying sin doesn't count when there's no law. Now look at verse 14. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Do you see why it's tricky? It sounds like Paul's saying this. Sin doesn't really count when there's no law, but you still get the punishment for breaking the law even before the law is given. Do you see where it's tricky? Sin doesn't count when it's not a transgression, but you're still going to die as if you had transgressed. That's where it gets tricky. What's going on in this text? It's not a contradiction. What the Apostle Paul is trying to do is he's trying to say two things. He's not just saying one thing, which would make it sound like a contradiction. He's saying two things. On the one hand, he's saying, in the same way that Adam disobeyed and it broke everything, so Christ obeyed and it's fixing everything. That's what he's trying to say on the one hand by talking about trespasses. On the other hand, he's trying to say that sin is still bad. You don't play around with sin. He's trying to say even though there wasn't the Mosaic law, people still got judged for their sin. Think of the flood with Noah. Think of Babel. Think of Sodom and Gomorrah. Whatever it is, God still judges people for their sin even when they're, before you have the giving of the law. That's what Paul's trying to say. We've seen that in Romans 1 and 2. Romans 1 is the condemnation of the Gentile. Even if you don't have a Bible, you do by nature what you know to be wrong. Every culture that's ever existed have, has had rules against killing people. 
That has that rules against murder. Some will allow you to kill for some reasons, but not others. But every culture agrees that's ever existed in the history of the world agrees you can't just kill whoever you want, whenever you want, depending on who you are, okay? Chapter 2 in Romans was the condemnation of the Jew, where he says, even if you have the Bible and you know God's word, you still break it. Everybody has sinned and everybody needs God's grace. So what Paul's simply trying to say in verses 13 and 14 is this, just to summarize. People still sinned and got judged. People still sinned and fell under death even before the giving of the Mosaic law and also after the giving of the Mosaic law. That's simply his point, because we're all born broken in Adam. Romans 2.12, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law, okay? Two things I want to say here that I think are really important. Let me give you a few examples. So first of all, I like pirates, okay? I say that because the guys on staff make fun of me for that. I just am fascinated by that. Not Somali pirates, right? If you have an AK-47, that's, you're not a pirate, all right? That ruins pirating for me, but swashbucklers, right? Buccaneers. And one of the things that's interesting is uh, what they would do if they were going to take over a ship is they would hoist the Jolly Roger, right? This black flag. Uh, by the way, do you know why it's called the Jolly Roger? Uh, it's not because of some French word, Jolly Rouge. I've heard some other reasons. The reason it's called the Jolly Roger is because they used to call the devil Old Roger, right? That's a symbol of death. It's a symbol of the devil when they're raising this Jolly Roger. So if you're a merchant ship and you saw another ship and they raised a black flag with the Jolly Roger on it, maybe sometimes it's just a skull, sometimes it's got the crossbones, sometimes it's got the sabers, sometimes it would have other imagery like a, a, an hourglass to say your time is up. If you saw that flag, you actually didn't have to freak out yet because that was your chance to surrender. Pirates would go on board and they wouldn't just kill everybody. If you surrendered, they typically just take your stuff and leave. They're mainly thieves. They're not mainly murderers, although they did murder as well, okay? So if you saw that black flag, that Jolly Roger, you would surrender. They would come on, take what they wanted, typically leave. Sometimes they'd recruit your people. They'd maroon you on an island. They did all kinds of things, okay? But if they hoisted that flag and you thought, we're going to try to outrun them, or we're going to fire a cannon back at them, or we're going to fight, they actually would take down the Jolly Roger and they would put up a solid red flag. They would put up, it's called the bloody red flag. They would put up that flag to say, we will show you no quarter. We will kill everyone on board. We gave you a chance to surrender. You didn't surrender, so now we will kill everyone. We will show you no quarter on this ship. That's what it meant, okay? The Apostle Paul is trying to say, your sin, even before the law is given, cannot be managed. It leads to death. It hurts you. It will destroy you. You cannot manage your sin. You have to raise the bloody red flag against it. You cannot merely just deal with your sin. You have to fight it. You have to put it to death. You can't take your idols and just put them in the closet so you don't see them. You have to take a sledgehammer to them, okay? That's what the Bible is saying, that you have to take whatever it is that you deal with, you struggle with, that you're trying to manage. You're trying to hide. It's a little pet sin, and you have to slit its throat. That's what this text is saying, that sin, even before the law is given, leads to death. It's dangerous. Do not play with it. Sin always, when it's full grown, leads to death. That's what he's saying. And he's showing that there's these two eras. There's an era where sin reigns before the Mosaic law is given from Adam to Christ, or from Adam to Moses. And then there's an era where sin reigns after the Mosaic laws is given. So to give you another pirate analogy, since we're on that, when there were pirates in the Caribbean, they're uh, not the movie, when there were pirates in the Caribbean, before the government was set up, did the pirates still die? Yes. Did the pirates still get into fights with other pirates? Yes. Did the pirates still sometimes get uh, caught by local governments where they were hanged? Yes, okay? But before there was government set up in the Caribbean, they pretty much kind of did what they want. They'd still die, but there wasn't a list of wrongs against them, okay? They actually set up an entire pirate republic, a place called Nassau, which is an entire nation run by pirates, which is crazy. 
But eventually, the British government set up colonies, they set up governments on islands like, you know, you, you have a lot of this in the Caribbean where you have governments being set up by the Spanish, set up by the French, set up by the, the English, in places like Cuba, places like Jamaica, whatever. And now, now, there was this list of wrongs against you when you would be caught. Yes, were there pirates? Yes, did they die? But now that government was set up, now it was, your chance of dying was a lot higher. You'd be captured, and what they would do is they would read off that list. You are condemned to death because you've committed 10 counts of piracy, four counts of rape, two counts of murder, and a count of petty theft or whatever, and they would hang you. And you wouldn't be on death row for 20 years. You'd be on death row for a day, okay? And they would have a Protestant minister, a Reformed Calvinistic minister, come and minister to you before you're hanging. His name was Cotton Mather, was one of the guys that actually ministered to pirates. He's one of the most famous preachers in America. His family is related to the family of Jonathan Edwards. And so they would minister to these pirates, and then what they would do is they would hang them. They would then take their bodies, cover them in tar so they wouldn't rot, and put them in a cage in the ports so that anybody thinking, man, maybe I want to be a pirate. Yo-ho, the pirate's life is for me. You see a dead guy hanging in a cage, and you think, nope, I'm going to be a farmer. Farming is what I'm called to. I love farming, right? I hate the water. That's what you would think. What Paul is saying is that before the law was given, there's still sin, there's still death, but once the law is given, these governments are set up, and now there's the hangings. Now there is the record of wrongs against you, okay? There is the record of wrongs against you. I realize, by the way, this text is kind of weird. Zach, what's the point of your sermon? Uh, sin and transgression are kind of different between Adam and Moses. That's the point. It's a weird text. This is what expository preaching does. It makes you teach on things you typically wouldn't teach on. But let's look. There's good news here. So if we just ended the sermon there and we just said, we're born sinful in Adam, we commit our own sins, and not only do we commit sins, but we live after Moses, so we commit transgressions. We commit the worst things. We know the rules and we still break them. We're all condemned to death like pirates. Amen. And we just left. That'd be awful. But this text ends with a glimmer of hope. Look at the end of verse 14. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. Look at this last part. Who was a type of the one who was to come. The Old Testament is full of shadows of which Jesus is the form. It's full of these little hints of which Jesus solves the riddle. Was Adam a real person? Yes. Did those things happen? Yes. Was Moses a real person? Yes. Did those things happen? Yes. Was Abraham a real person? Yes. Did those things happen? Yes. Was David a real person? Yes. Did those things happen? Yes. Was Noah a real person? Yes. Did those things happen? Yes. But all of those things are not ultimately about those guys. They're about Christ. They are the type. He is the anti-type. The whole Bible is about Jesus. Before you read your Old Testament, put on your Jesus glasses. Put on your New Testament glasses because this text just said Adam is a type of the one who was to come. In what way? Adam was our ambassador and he messed it up. Jesus, though, as our ambassador, fixes it. Fixes it. Let me give you some passages. 2 Corinthians 1.20, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Notice, the Bible just said all the Old Testament, all those promises are about one particular guy, Christ. Luke 24.27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He's saying all these things written about me in the prophets and the law aren't really about the prophets and the law. They're just the shadow. They're really about me. Galatians 3.16, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. All the promises in the Old Testament made to Israel are fulfilled in Jesus. That's what this text is going to say, okay? He is the point, and that's where we find hope. We are born broken and sinful in Adam, and we deserve death and condemnation. 
conscious, eternal torment for eternity because that's how holy God is. And our only hope is that we have a better ambassador, one who is truly man but is also truly God, one who intercedes for us, the God-man, the second person of the Trinity that while remaining God takes on flesh and dwells among us. That's our hope. You're born into Adam. You're born again into Christ. We leave you with one more passage, and then I want to end with something. In Genesis 3.15, Genesis 3.15 ends, Genesis ends kind of the same way this passage ends. Mankind is just sin. There's been this just overwhelming curse pronounced against mankind, but it says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, talking to the serpent, and between your offspring, meaning the devil, evil things that attack people, uh, and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. In this text, it says we're condemned because of Adam, but... Because of Christ, we're okay if we know Him. But that's what the Bible's always been saying. Back in Genesis 3, when mankind fell, there's this promise that though these things will be bad, though you've been separated from God, all of that, there is one who's coming from this woman who will crush that serpent's head. Who will crush that serpent's head. And it's only by being united to Him that you move from death to life. So here's the question. Do you know Jesus? Not did you pray a prayer when you were six? Not did you get baptized when you were 11? That's not my question. My question is not, did you do something or you do a religious ritual or you pray a prayer? My question is this, have you been transformed by Christ? Do you know the Spirit dwells in you? Do you love Christ? Because if you don't or you don't know, you can. You can simply repent, lay down your arms, forsake Adam and trust in Christ. Move your allegiance from a country with a bad ambassador to a country with a good ambassador. Switch, switch. Did you guys see the uh, royal wedding yesterday? Any of it? All the girls are like, amen. Now you're talking my language. I saw some of the royal wedding, and here's, here's what I thought about as far as the gospel imagery. Meghan Markle is now royalty, okay? Was she born royalty? She was not. She was born in Los Angeles. A week ago, was she royalty? She was not. But today, she's royalty. Why? Is she royalty in and of herself? If she was just single still by herself, would she be royalty? No, why is she royal? Because who she's united to. She's in Harry, if you want to say it that way, like we are in Christ, because she's united to royalty, because she's married into royalty, she's now seen truly as royalty. That's what happens in the gospel. We're born not into royalty. We're born into Adam. We're born into death. We're born into disease. We're born into condemnation. But by marrying Christ, that's what the church is, the bride of Christ, by marrying Christ, we're now seen as royalty, not in and of ourselves, not just by us, but because of who we're linked to, because our husband is the church's Christ. That's the idea. Do you know Christ? If you do, Rest in that. If you don't, ask him to save you. Bow the knee to him. Repent. Submit to him. Tell him, you're, tell him he's your master. Turn from sin and turn to him. Would you do that as we just pray? I'm going to have the men come forward to pass out communion. Whatever you need to do between you and God, let's do that as we just kind of pray. And these men are going to pass out the elements for communion. Almighty God, we thank you for your power and your love. Uh, We thank you for this text. Uh, Even though it's kind of a strange text, there's so much good things in here where we're encouraged of the type of the one who's to come, uh, where we're encouraged that you love us despite our terrible failures. We thank you that you've not left us in Adam. You could have just condemned all of us, and that could have been the end of the story, and you would have been totally, totally right and just to do all of that. But instead, you've given Christ. You've given the eternal Son. And so we thank you for that. We ask for grace. We ask for help right now. We love you. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.